in this incredible journey, the sacred journey. And I do recommend you get both this book. Uh, most of the time we make it required. We actually, you pay a registration, we give it to you as part of the registration. Next time we'll do that. But uh, thou shalt get it. Uh, you really should get this book. Bro, you've, you've, you've been reading the Passion Translation for a while because I see a, a former version there from our, from our other publisher. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I have people mad at me because I changed, I revised it. I mean, mad. Winnie Banoff, like, she smacked me. You took bliss, you took bliss out of the Song of Songs. I said, well, it's there. I just took one bliss out. But she noticed it. Yeah, she got all upset with me. But anyway, um, this journey is the journey of of every true lover of God. Everyone is going to be on this journey. And you will see yourself in this journey. And as we shared last night, those of you that were here, could I have just a few minutes to review for those that weren't? We discovered that the word Shulamite and Solomon is the same Hebrew root word. One is masculine, one is feminine. And he that is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. The Song of Songs is not a how-to manual for uh, marriages that need help, all right? That if you need help in that regard, go get help. But the Song of Songs is not a book of erotica. It's not sensuality. It's the deepest spirituality you'll ever encounter. It is divine romance. It's the flaming heart of Jesus Christ unveiled before our hearts. And as we read these eight chapters of prophetic revelation, it is encouragement, affirmation. It is speaking into our destiny. It's calling things that are not as though they were. And he prophesies into her beauty long before she ever feels beautiful. She's a goat-keeping girl from Shunem. She smells like goats. Her hair is dirty. She's been out under the sun for so long. She's, uh, uh, she's really angry. She's kind of burnt out. She's lost her first love. She's a believer that filled the churches today in Florida of people burnt out, have lost their first love, and are busy taking care of church things, but their own inner garden is weeded. The vineyard of love has not been tended and cared for. So what happens is she's so busy working in the nursery and caring for church stuff that she has left this passionate, thank you, sweetheart, that passionate place of pursuing him and loving him until finally she awakens and says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. The kiss is the first thing we do to a newborn. It's the last thing we do to a loved one when they leave this earth. And a kiss, in every culture, everybody knows what a kiss is. It's tender. It's expressive. And so, for her to say to the Lord, kiss me, let him kiss me, is to say, I'm vulnerable. I want you to come. I want first love passion in my life again. I don't want to be busy taking care of everybody's stuff while my own life goes uh, uncared for and, and, and not productive for you. So, he instantly manifests you just ask him to come, let him kiss me, instantly he, he manifests. I can't wait to do this on Broadway. How we'll do it, I don't know. He, he just like, don't want to do a genie, but we'll do something cool where he, probably he's there all the time. Yeah, that's what it is. And, she, and he steps out of the shadow and, and then she says, your love. So it goes from let him kiss me to your love. Third person to second person. He's, he reveals himself. When a, you cry for a kiss, he's going to show up. I dare you. Double dog, to start praying in your devotions every morning. Kiss me. 
with the kisses of your word. Because man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The kisses of his mouth. Don't think of Jesus kissing you on the lips. That's weird. Think of the kiss of God smacking you. A God smack. Pow. Right on your heart. Where the fiery flame of God's love uh, electrifies you. And, and just fills you with desire for him. Your love is better than wine. Wine is an emblem of the things of this world, the pleasures of this life. There's a greater, higher pleasure than anything this world can give me. Nobody does me like Jesus does me. There's something so powerful about his love that it's greater. You can experience it. You don't have to be married. You don't have to uh, have a perfect marriage. I don't care who you are, where you are. You can experience a love that transcends anything here on this world. You can say amen anytime you want. Okay. There is something waiting for you. It is glorious. And uh, you have underestimated the power of love all your life. And I don't mean that as a rebuke. I'm just saying that as a fact that we do not understand the power of the love of God to restore, heal, and mature us. The church matures you with guilt at times and uh, pointing out flaws. When Jesus does the opposite, removes guilt, only points to your destiny, and you passionately want to grow up into that image that he's put before you. He calls us lovely long before we, and he never exaggerates. He's speaking truth into us. And he doesn't say you look lovely. That's different. That's flattery. He says you are, your beauty itself to me, the God who created the Grand Canyon, the cosmos, the starry host, every texture and tapestry of beauty of this planet defines beauty by your life. How does it feel to be the lookalike of Jesus Christ? He went on jharmony.com and your profile <laughs> popped up. He's chased you all your life. You just haven't discovered it. And chapter one, we went through it kind of quickly. And we talked about how uh, his, his name is flowing oil. In quotes, that's his name, flowing oil. I love that. Mm. And he brings her into the cloud-filled chamber. You remember? A chamber inside of a chamber. And the chamber inside of a chamber is the holy of holies, isn't it? And love will always bring you there. Love will bring you there. It's a tractor beam. It pulls your soul right into the fullness of God. So she awakens in the cloud-filled chamber, in the king's chamber, and she's suddenly aware of all her inadequacies. She feels very inferior. She feels like I'm really marrying up here. This is like, whoa, totally out of my class. And she says, I'm darkened by the sun. And I, I feel like the tit curtains of Kedar, like the baked animal skins cooked under the sun. That's who I feel I really am. And he speaks to her ear and whispers in her ear and says, no, you are lovely as the linen curtains of the Holy of Holies that only I, the priest, get to see. I see a beauty in you no one else sees. People will always fasten onto your flaws. They will lock onto your failure. Years go by, and they'll still remember you at your worst moment. Jesus never does that. You don't have a worst moment in his eyes. 
the, the love filter, the love lens over his heart, the grace glasses. He looks at us and sees destiny clinging to our soul. He sees the perfected, finished work he's going to finish in us. And that's how he treats us, next of kin to the Trinity. He treats us as the regal bride of Yeshua, the bride of the Lamb, the Lamb's wife. And the Father grooms us and prepares us, not with anger and and guilt and making you feel so cruddy you want to just, you know, slide under the chair. He affirms us into our wholeness. Words that are spoken into our destiny that will take us years to unfold as he really whispers truth in our innermost being. Some of you look like you, you could use this today. Really. I mean, you've been beat up. Life under the sun kind of ruins us at times. Some of you have given up on church. Some of you have given up on, on situations, and the Lord is going to restore you. He's going to heal you. I posted that on Facebook today. The Lord's going to restore your family. He's going to heal. The end of this year is going to bring the greatest glory you've ever seen. Just wait. And a love revival is going to sweep over Florida. It is going to be a revival of love. And I'm determined not to be a part of any, any movement that isn't built on the love of God. It doesn't mean... There's not truth because we speak the truth in love, don't we? But, uh, you know, I, I, I just don't, what, what's the song say? I, I don't want to be in a world without love. And that's how I feel. And I, I'm just a love addict. I'm out of the closet. I don't care anymore. I'm a lovesick adorer of Jesus Christ. It's not common for men to speak this way, but I don't care. I'm over that. I'm over, I'm over the type A alpha dog you know, I, I've been accused. I had some of the, you, you know them. I mean, some key leaders in the nation, spiritually, pulled me aside and said, you're, you're, you're feminizing the church. I said, look, bros. I said, Jesus is not coming back for a husband. And it got eerily quiet. I'm not feminizing the church. Because if you were here last night, what's the word kiss? It's a homonym. We got, remind me to talk about homonym. Nashak, like nashak, Whoa. Nashak is the word for kiss, and, and it has another meaning in Hebrew. What is it? To arm for battle, to be a warrior, to take up weapons. So the real warrior has got to be kissed first, bro. You're going you're gonna to use that sword like Peter and cut off people's ability to hear the message of the love of God. Cut off the ear. And that's what anger does. Anger of man always cuts off the people to hear the truth of God's love. So... Uh, it's a very masculine book. It really is. And I've, I'm in love with the Song of Songs. I've written about it. My wife and I did a commentary uh, that you're going to get on the way out. This, this revelation that, you know, the, the homonym, the last word of Jesus, keep quiet over here, but the last word of Jesus on the cross, what was the last word he spoke on the cross? It is finished. It is finished Here's the deal, folks. Jesus did not speak Greek. Telestoi is the Greek word finished. It is, was inserted by the translators. He just spoke one word, telestoi. And uh, Jesus spoke, uh, the last word Jesus spoke in Aramaic, because he spoke Aramaic from the cross, the language of Jesus, the lingua franca of that era, of that day, and of that region geographically, was Aramaic. Galilean Aramaic, all right? Jesus was a Galilean. Galilee means the place of revelation. 
he walked on the sea of revelation. Morostanda. Okay? There's a glory that he operated in. You've underestimated the power of revelation. Revelation is very powerful. Okay? What money is on earth, revelation is in heaven. It has power. If you, if you have a revelation of healing, you have it. It's your currency. It's how you purchase the things of spirit. You cannot buy with money healing, miracles, maturity, souls. You can't buy them with money. But there is a revelation that becomes the currency that is equal to money on earth is revelation in heaven. So, homonym, kala. The last word Jesus spoke was kala. A homonym is a word that has different meanings but pronounced the same. English has a lot of them, like red. Past tense to the, to the Bible. I read the Bible. Red, color of a shirt. Two words that have no correlation whatsoever other than they're pronounced the same. Kala has another meaning. It does mean finished. It means consummated, completed. But kala is the Aramaic Hebrew word bride. The last word Jesus spoke on the cross, bride. The last word. Jesus spoke on the cross was bride. What if for 2,000 years the church has been robbed or deprived of, of that revelation? I believe the books are being opened and many are going to go here and there and revelation knowledge will increase. You're getting a brand new Bible, folks. It's not being rewritten. It's just being revealed. And God is breathing upon the Word of God like never before. And revelatory teachers are going to be esteemed in the house again. They're going to be sought after. As much as we chase prophets for a prophetic word, we're going to want revelation of what's coming. We want to know the truth of God and the heart of God from the Scriptures. And it will look totally different when you get the Song of Songs as a love, uh, love theology. As you become a seminarian of the love of God, and you enroll in the divine seminary of the Shulamite journey, you will discover that it's all centered around the bride, the Song of Songs, because it's not good for the Son of Man to be alone. And he wants a bride at his side. He wants a partner, a companion, an eternal bride that will rule and reign with him and govern the universe. So you have a really high destiny. I mean, bigger than just like, oh, I think I can get a vacation squeezed in. No. Your destiny is to like rule angels and to rule uh, the universe as a co-regent, as a co-signer to the title deed of the universe, joint heir of all things. Dude, the last 10 minutes, we've said enough right here just to, to ponder like, oh, my, 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 my. So this bridal revelation must become the foundation of our spirituality. And of course, there's other things in the Bible, and I teach a lot of stuff from the Bible. But the one that I feel the most passionate about is what I'm sharing with you this weekend. And I, I usually, when we come to a, a church for the first time, I love to teach, if they let me, the Song of Songs. So thank you, pastors, for for, uh, for putting, it, putting it on and hosting this. Now, chapter 2 begins, and who is the Rose of Sharon? 
we're the rose of Sharon. Sharon. And I know that it's traditionally taught otherwise, and I'm not, uh, it's not a, like, it's okay. Don't worry about it. Uh, That's not an issue. If that's your deal, then stay with it. Keep it. Sing it. Love it. But in this context of the Song of Songs, the Shulamite is the one who says, I get it. I think I get it. I'm starting here at chapter 2. I'm starting to get it. I am the rose of his heart. I'm the rose. And then she says, I'm the lily. We talked about lilies, how they're a picture of God's people. And um, then we went to the apple tree, remember? And under the apple tree, chapter 2, she sat under the apple tree and, and fed herself with the fruit of his life, the fruit of his spirit, the glory of who he is. Under the shade of his grace, she sat there and just got so full and complete, she zonks out into a trance and is taken, transported into what is called the banqueting table in most translations. See, I'm ruining a lot of songs here. Uh, uh, He brought me to the house of wine. It's really the wine cellar, the house of wine. And wine, of course, is not grapes. It's the wine of his love, the wine of his spirit. It is the, the pure anointing of the Holy Spirit. This is the engagement party. This is the bride-to-be. Getting, she's getting proposed to right here. And will you take me as your grace-wedded husband? So in this engagement party, she feasts on him. She drinks and drinks and drinks of his love. Oh, drink some this morning. Come on, you need a stiff one. You need a double. Drink of his love. Drink it in. Drink, drink, drink of his love. Take more until you have to say less. Less, Lord, less. I believe before this day's over, you may actually say, I don't think I can take this anymore. So, she passes out at her own engagement party. His left hand, left arm comes around under her head, and then the right arm, you're getting a picture. A right arm embraces me. The left hand is, is the hand of... Uh, mystery. The left hand is the hand of the invisible works of God that you do not know He's doing for you, but invisibly God Himself has protected you, has favored you, and blessed you, and you don't even realize at times because the left hand holds your head. It's the unseen. You can't see it, but there it is. His left hand is holding you. Isn't that great? That's beautiful. And then the right arm is the arm of power and strength, and this is the miraculous power, the visible that you have seen in your life, how you didn't die when people thought you were going to die, and, and you didn't have that car accident, and you, all of these things that took place because the right arm has come and embraced you. And as the curtain falls, he tells them, don't awaken her. He puts a do not disturb sign over her heart until she's ready to arise, and when she awakens, she will come into a new realm. Uh, chapter 2 goes on. We got the, I got to hurry here. We got the uh, dancing king as he leaps over the mountains and she gets a new revelation that he's a lot more than what she thought. He's not just this sweet little shepherd guy, that he's infinitely glorious. He jumps over mountains. Have you ever done that? I mean, he leaps over the barriers. The mountains in the Bible are the obstacles that stand between you and God. You know, say to this mountain, be removed and cast into the sea. Can I say to you, you've not understood that verse. Because when Jesus spoke it, there was no mountain around. 
What mountain is he speaking about? The kingdom of God is a mountain, the mountain of the kingdom of the Lord. Kingdoms are like mountains in the Bible. Book of Daniel, Isaiah 2, we could take you through the scriptures and show you where mountains are like, our kingdoms are like mountains. So he's saying, say to this kingdom mountain, come and go and cast into the nations, the sea of humanity. Go into the sea, uh, the sea, the mass of people. Come with me, kingdom of God, and I'm going to take kingdom authority and kingdom power to the nations wherever I go. That's the kingdom mountain we take with us. Ha! Isn't that good? Why don't I stop right now and give you real quick uh, something that will absolutely change your outlook of Bible. It'll take me a few minutes to unwrap this, and then I will get you quickly through chapters 3 and 4 of Song of Songs, all right? I want to talk about Pardus. If you've not if you have heard this in one of my meetings, don't raise your hand. But is there anybody here that's ever heard of Pardis? Okay, I've asked thousands, maybe 10,000 people if they've ever heard. Nobody's ever heard of it. What I'm going to tell you is one of the most powerful keys the Lord has given to unlock the Scripture. It's an acronym, P-R-D-S. Pardis is the Hebrew word paradise. And for 3,000 years... Rabbis have taught that the Word of God is paradise on paper. It's written form of paradise. You enter into paradise through the Word of God. You see, the Jewish people, you need a little Jewishness in you because they love the Word of God. And I'm a little shocked at how many charismatic, dreaming, prophetic, cruzomatic Christians do not read the Scriptures. I've had one young guy... Throw the Bible on the floor and said, I don't need it. I can go to heaven and I can just tap into the spirit realm and I don't really need the word of God. I said, my friend, you are deceived. Take heed that you don't deceive yourself. We need the scriptures. We need to love the word of God. So P-R-D-S, write them down. P-R-D-S, P is Peshat, P-E-S-H-A-T. I'm going to go quick, so do it fast. Peshat is the Hebrew word plain or simple. Every Bible verse has a plain or simple meaning to it, right? Thank God that we can understand the Bible because it has a plain and simple meaning. There's three more levels. The next is remez, R-E-M-E-Z, the Hebrew word for hint. In every Bible verse, there's a hint of something beyond it. Jesus is born in Bethlehem. Was he really born in Bethlehem? Yes. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Every verse has a plain and simple meaning. Read it, believe it, it's true. But is there a hint? Jesus was born in Bethlehem. What about God becoming a man? You got incarnation. You, can, you see hints in that. That he, he had a beginning on earth, but maybe Jesus didn't have a beginning uh, at all. Maybe he was without beginning, but became a man. So there's a hint there. The third level is drash, D-R-A-S-H. And if you know Hebrew, it is where you get midrashic teachings. Midrash, midrash is be exegetical or be expository teachings. The Jewish teachings, the rabbis have midrashic writings, okay, where they unfold the scriptures. Darash means, uh, means it, it literally means to make a road, to carve out a road. But it can also mean to seek or to inquire. And the correlation 
of the universe of meaning of Midrash, of Drosh, make a road and to seek and inquire, is that you're looking, you're discovering, uh, you're, you're pressing into some place you haven't gone before. You're in a thick jungle, you're cutting down the brush, you're making a road, you're, you're seeking a way through it, right? You're seeking. So that's the commonality there. So Drosh means there's revelation from God you will not get unless you seek for it. You must study it. You must go deep. You must cut down and seek it through. And whether it's word studies or, you know, uh, we, we got to go for it. I would hope that you will go for it in 2016, that you'll really go deeper into the Word of God. And if you're bored with Scripture, it's, it's your issue because the Word of God's waiting for you. Go after it. Dig. Plow ahead. Move through and, and study it. I've, uh, I've spent hours daily for the last 44 years, uh, you know, to, in prayer and Bible study. So it yields fruit uh, over time. Duty becomes delight if you'll give yourself to it for a season. It will turn into something where it's no longer duty. It's a joy. Well, the Western church lives in the first two realms rarely touches the third, and hardly ever, ever, ever. Matter of fact, they even fight what I'm about to tell you. The evangelical church of which I have been raised in. I'm, you know, I've been trained by some of the, really, honestly, some of the finest Bible teachers and men and women of God that walk the earth. I've had the benefit of being trained for 44 years through some of their lives. And uh, yet, this last level is sod, S-O-D. It's the fourth level. And it is the Hebrew word mystery. It's a Hebrew word for secret. You find it in the book of Psalms. The secret of the Lord is with those who fear Him, right? Secret or mystery. I believe the homonym becomes part of this because it's so mysterious how one word can mean different things and God embedded all of it. He is, he's like multiple chessboard player. When he makes a move, everything like shifts in every realm, every dimension, fifth dimension. How's that? So the glory is God's delight to take his word and wrap glory around it. Bless you. And the only way you get into the essence and mystery of his word is to get into the glory. Now the sod level is not, you will not get it in a 300 year old commentary. You will not get it uh, by podcasts. You will not get it by the teachings of men. The sod level is revealed by God. It is, it is His, he, he alone traffics because He owns that realm. His thoughts are not our thoughts because they're sod. Now Jesus and all the prophets taught in this fourth level. And this is why their words to this day still carry revelation meaning on multiple levels. And just because you've been told that a certain verse has already been fulfilled doesn't mean that there's not still a fulfillment coming. And the current trendy eschatological view right now is what's called the preterist. They call it partial preterist, which basically snips out a huge section of the book of Revelation. It says it's historically already fulfilled. And I've talked with a lot of uh, people around the world about this teaching and I think it's so good. It's definitely more victorious than the Antichrist is coming and go hide and hoard and get a bunker, get guns, 
And you're going to get the mark of that chip is coming into you. Oh, dude, come on. What in the world? But if, what if the book of Revelation, like the Song of Songs, is an allegory? What if it's a story embedded in a story that you have to unlock? What if it is sawed level? Just thinking. Now, Jesus, as an example, a classic example of Jesus speaking mysteries and nobody getting it, was the woman at the well. The woman at the well. This chick, you know, uh, she was locked into the natural world, wasn't she? She was thinking water. She comes with her water pot, going to come to the well. She's going to come to get some water. And Jesus is trying to get her. He's He's talking about water. She's talking about water. But it's two different things. How many times is God saying something to you? You're interpreting it on the, on the, uh, the, the what is it, the, um, the Peshat level when he's really speaking in the sod. So many times he does that to me. And it's like his entertainment with us to speak something to you. This is why people misinterpret prophetic words because it's sod level and they're interpreting on a natural realm. And they expect something that never happens, and they get all upset, and they, they just they get really bumped because of it. Okay, woman at the well. Jesus came to Samaria, right, uh, he, to meet her. He had an appointed destiny with her. And then, but he, he came to a well. Whose well was it that Jesus? Jacob's well. He came to Jacob's spring. It's a spring-fed well. In the Greek language, it means a spring-fed well. So he came, and what did he do? He sat on Jacob's well. Jesus closed Jacob's life. He closed the spring, the well of life. He closed one well. He closed Jacob. The Jacob life doesn't need to be in you anymore. Clever, conniving, competitive. You're going to push your way. You're gonna, that, that malicious uh, evil of Jacob. Ended. Jesus sat and closed. Jacob's well. Isn't that great? And he opened up a brand new one. He's a well sitting on a well. You're going to get this? So here's a well sitting on a well, and he's bringing up with everlasting life, and he's waiting for this woman to come. She finally comes with her water pot, and and she says, give me a drink of, uh, uh, he says, give me a drink, and, and they get into this dialogue that is so funny. She's thinking world, natural. He's thinking supernatural, eternal. And they get into this dialogue about where to worship, how to worship. Uh, are you better than Jacob who gave us this well and watered his flocks? Are you kidding? This is the God of Jacob sitting there. And, and, so, and she's talking about, you know, finally she gets, starts to get half of it. And she says, okay, give me this water but so that I don't have to come back and drink it again. See, she's still thinking natural water. She's like maybe dipping her foot into thinking a little bit differently. I want you to see yourself as her, if you can, because so many times he speaks to us revelatory truths, and we're locked into a realm that isn't fully his. He came into our world. Now, why don't you get into his? Okay? Okay. So he finally says, go call your husband. Remember? And she says, husband? <clears throat> husband? I've had five husbands. And the one I'm living with isn't. 
And Jesus said, that's right. Can I say to all of you here, and don't take offense, every one of you, you've been married to five husbands. You've been married to five husbands. You've been married to your five senses. You are locked in the natural realm. You're married to a realm that isn't God's. You're shacked up with six, which is number of man. Are you going to get into sod with me, baby? Six is the number of man. Made on the sixth day, man is the number six. Six, six, six is the number of, not the number of the Antichrist. It's the no, Antichrist is not in the book of Revelation. I, I'm going to say that until you get it. The Antichrist is not in the book of Revelation. It's a spirit that John talks about that had already been in the world 2,000 years when he wrote it. Probably goes all the way back to Adam's sin, the sin of man. It's not the man of sin standing in the temple. It's the sin of man standing in the temple saying, I am God. Jesus is the seventh husband. He's the perfect one. He's the seventh, isn't he? With revelation bursting into her soul, this troubled woman in an instant got it, saw it came into her heart. She dropped her water pot and became one. And she carried living water into a city and led an entire city to Jesus. This chick was the first city reacher of the New Testament. She was the greatest evangelist of all time. Because I'm now going to tell you a secret. Her name is Potini. P-H-O-T-I-N-I. Potini. Ladies and gentlemen, Potini went down in church history as a city-reaching evangelist. Filled with the Spirit in the upper room, she went on from there and led village after village throughout the nation. She was winning, not people, villages to Jesus. She was recorded in church history as the greatest evangelist ever to walk the earth. And she was named... As the preeminent one, Peter, James, John, uh uh-huh, Potini. Throughout the first decades and centuries of church history, Potini was always, always named right alongside Peter, James, and John as the preeminent apostles of the church. Ladies, why do you think she was taken out of church history and deleted from our our understanding. Anybody, any one of the gals want to take a guess? Why she was conveniently taken out, deleted from the files? She was a woman. Couldn't handle. In a, in a male, alpha dog male culture, could not handle a woman like Potini. There's more. She goes to Alexander, Egypt, turning this massive world-class city upside down with the gospel power of God coming from her. Jesus appears in front of her and says, Potini, I have a work for you to do in Rome. Potini goes to Rome under the leading of God. And Nero, the emperor, the God emperor of Rome and of the world, most powerful human being on earth, summoned her to his palace when he heard she had come into his city. They 
ushered Potini and her women before Nero. Looking down from his eagle throne, he said to diminutive Potini, are you ready to die for this Nazarene? It's his exact word. Are you ready to die for this Nazarene that you follow? She said, not only I, but all these women that are with me are ready to die for the Nazarene. He was so startled by her bold faith, confidence, courage, that he let her go, which was a huge mistake because she led everyone in the palace on her way out to Jesus Christ. All the people who were attending her and every single person that she met, she was winning to Christ. This girl was a soul-winning machine. I mean, the Baptists would want her. She led Nero's brother to Christ. So infuriated the emperor, he heated up a fiery furnace and threw Potini into that furnace for three days, after which she walked out and continued to preach the gospel. One of the greatest women to walk the earth, Potini, and you'd never heard about her till today. The secret of the Lord. Now, some of you may want to research. I have people actually writing books. I may write a book about her. I'm actually, I am going to write a book called Deliverers. It'll be out next, end of next year, and it's going to be chapters, probably 12 or 13 chapters of people you've never heard of in church history who changed the world, and Potini will have a chapter. But I got other people writing entire studying, like they're writing doctoral thesis on her because they heard me share about it, and the Lord gave me her name by revelation. And I researched it out and found out the story that I shared with you. So, Ezekiel, Zechariah, Joel, the prophets, all ministered in that realm. And when Jesus came, the Word made flesh, He likewise taught and ministered in a way that people could not perceive fully. I mean, we read what He says... We think we understand, and we do some, but there's so much that goes whoop right over us. So, believe me, if the wisest man on earth by the name of Solomon writes a book, it's not about sex. It couldn't be the song of all songs to have that. Not, I'm not uh, denigrating that. I'm just saying there's something greater than the earthly fleshly realm. And the Song of Songs is this beautiful soliloquy of of divine romance of Jesus sweeping you off your feet and bringing you into the fire of His love. Chapter 2, it ends, as you remember, she said no. He came to her twice. Uh, He came to her once, but twice he said to her, arise, my love, and come away. Arise, my love, and come away. And she refused. She uh, didn't feel ready, ill-prepared. How can I go up a dark mountain trail with somebody I barely know? A man I barely know, and you want me to leave everything and go with you to, to who knows where? What if I fall down? What if I slide down the trail? What if you leave me halfway? What if uh, fear of failure, no doubt, gripped her? She felt inferior. I could not go and leap over mountains. I, you want me to go with you and be trained in the higher realms, but... It scares the daylights out of me. So she said, return. The Hebrew word 
is not just turn, but return. Go back where you came from. Come back another time until the day breaks and the shadows flee. Return to the mountains of separation, the Hebrew word bether. Return and come back when I'm ready. And we ended last night, as you remember, he went up, remember he went up the dark mountain trail and he left her, right? No. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. He just went far enough that she couldn't see it. And uh, when we do this on Broadway, everybody in the theater will see that he's still there. She just can't see it. Chapter 3, night after night, she tosses and turns on her bed. Where is my beloved? She understands now that she let him go. She said no to him. You ever said no to God? You going to be honest with me? (laughs) Have you ever said no when he comes and challenges you to a new place that you're not ready for in your thinking? But if, if he calls you, then he equips you. In his calling is the power to do it. That's why he said to Gideon, go in this your might because I am with you. Our might and our strength is the God who is with us. And if he calls us, he never calls you to failure. Never. He will never call you to something and you will fail in. Never. He calls you. When he calls you, you will succeed and you will be fruitful and it will come to pass. So uh, she finds the watchman. She goes out into the city. Now, the city is a picture, a metaphor of the local church. The city becomes a picture of the local church. We are a city set on a hill. A city has government, it has boundaries, it has structure and order. And so the local church, likewise, uh, protocol, etc., So she goes back into the local church that she left. She didn't want to be a part of. She's upset with them. But she comes back because if you ever can't find Jesus, guess where he'll be? Hanging out with his people. Where two or more are gathered, that's where you'll find me. So she goes back and engages in the body. She finds the watchmen, which are the spiritual overseers, the shepherds. They keep watch over our souls, don't they? And she bumps into them. In chapter 3, they're really good ones. Chapter 5, not so. Not so much. But here in chapter 3, how many of you know there's really good shepherds and pastors like Andrew here and his wife and the other team of, of this house? But there's wonderful shepherds who care for the flock and the body. They're not fleecing the flock. They're feeding the flock, right? And uh, they're doing their job. They're watching over the city, the, the house of God. And scarcely did she go past them that she found him whom her soul loves. Folks, we have to get past our leaders. We have to get over it. Whether they're good, bad, you like them, you don't, get over it. And go past them and you'll find him. And they'll like that. They won't be upset as long as you find him because that's our job. We're aquariums. We're see-through leaders. That's who we're to be. And if you see Jesus swimming around, then hang out with me. That's, that's what we are. We, don't, we, we preach not ourselves, Paul said, but Christ Jesus the Lord. So she goes past them and finds him. And like Mary in the garden when, she, when Jesus was resurrected, she clings to his feet and will not let him go. Remember the resurrection morning, Jesus said, let me go. I got, a, you know, I got some things to do. And so in the Song of Songs, we get a little bit of that scene of Mary. This is why many Catholics interpret the Song of Songs, Mary is the Shulamite. And I know that's a, an interpretive model that, that many Catholics have used. But... Uh, in this picture, this, of course, is our soul in hot pursuit of God. 
we find him, and she says, I will not let him go until I bring you to the house of the mother who bore me. Now, the house of the mother who bore me is the local church. We're all born again in the womb of the church. The church is our mother in in a figurative way of speaking, and we're to honor our father and our mother. So we honor the local church, and we all have a great debt. I was born again in a church meeting. So I, in 1971, I, I, I love the church. My wife and I absolutely love churches. We want to be in a church on a Sunday morning. I'm honored that I can mess up yours on Sunday here. But uh, she says, I want to bring him back into body life. I want to bring this relationship I have with him. I want to integrate it into my community, into my friendships, into the house of the Lord, the house, the mother who bore me. You see that? See how that sod connects? I hope. Hope you can see that. And the curtain rises to a brand new scene. And in this scene, <clears throat> when we do this on Broadway, we're going to have like a smoke machine. I did that in our church one time. We had a big church in New England, and I, and I told Mike Smith, our worship leader, I said, bro, go, go on eBay or somewhere and get a, get a smoke machine. He said, really, pastor, really? I said, yeah, I want a smoke machine. So he gets on eBay, he gets a used smoke machine, all right? It's really cool. The first Sunday we use it, we, oh, I said, yeah, put, I want you guys like standing in glory. Glory cloud up to your knees. Oh, we're all in the glory. I just want to, oh, let's do that. He says, okay, pastor. And they crank up the smoke machine. Guess what? It malfunctioned. And it poured out so much smoke and we couldn't stop it. We could not get it to stop. And the thing filled the sanctuary. I mean, we seated like 1,300 people in our, uh, each service. And, and it just filled it. And we're all like, that's, the fire alarm goes off. The firemen come. And what a horrible Sunday we had. All because some doofus pastor wanted a smoke machine. I said, all right, put it back on eBay. Don't tell them. Just pff, let the next church get it. <laughs> so that's my story with smoke machines. Anyway, we'll do it good on Broadway. The glory is going to be there, and all of a sudden you see Jesus, and you hear the voice, who is this rising up from the wilderness, ascending in a pillar of cloud of glory? Who is this wonderful Redeemer? And it's Jesus in ascension. He's going into the glory realm. And as the smoke clears, everybody's watching him go up, and they don't realize that on the stage, there's this Palanquin. Do you know what a palanquin is? A palanquin. It, it is a carriage. It's a marriage carriage for the king. It's, it had poles through it, and the real buff guys like Pastor Andrew would, would carry, you know, miniskirt, and they, these guys would carry the. Uh, don't get, okay. Delete that picture. Um, and they would carry the king and queen inside of this carriage. He forgot to tell her, you don't have to go up the mountain trail. I'll carry you. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit. And as you look at this carriage closely, you begin to see it resembles something. Is there anything else in the Bible that was carried on the shoulders of men through the wilderness? 
What was it? She's going to ride the ark of glory. Can I take you deeper? You are the ark of glory. Wood and gold, covered with gold, inside and out, overshadowed by angels with blood sprinkled on you. Come on, baby. Mercy is the seat upon which we sit. Inside of you are the same three things that's inside of the ark. A golden jar. You're a golden jar with wonder bread, mystery bread, manna. What is it? Forty years he fed the people with, what is it? You have in you the mystery of Christ in you. Colossians 1, 26, the mystery of Christ in you, the hope of glory, right? So you carry, like Mary, the beautiful mysteries of God. The second is Aaron's rod of resurrection that budded, a dead almond branch that budded because it was in the holy realm, and fruit and almonds came forth. Flowers and almonds sprung up overnight, and that resurrection stick is in you. You have, uh, you have a priestly calling. You've passed from death to life, and now you rule as a priest in the glory realm. The third is the tablets of the law. Where are they now written? Where is the law written upon? It's now upon the tablets of our heart, the iPad of our heart, the tablet. Anyway, so I found the ark. What are you going to do if I tell you the temple's not going to be rebuilt? And please don't give your money to rebuild it. Folks, the temple that's being rebuilt is Ezekiel 47, and it's a spiritual temple. So I tell people that they say, well, you know, temple's going to be rebuilt. I said, really? That's in the Bible? So are we going to have two rooms or three? You're going to sew the veil back up? How about animal sacrifices? Oh, well, it's going to be like a museum. I said, what? So God's going backwards. Behold, I do an old thing. I call you old creatures in Christ. Singing to me an old song. My mercies are old every morning. I don't think so, bro. I think there is a temple. And I translated all four Gospels. They're coming out in a compilation early next year, Gospels and Acts, the uh, act, the facts and the acts in one volume. I hope you'll get it. But in translating the four Gospels, it's very clear the statement Jesus spoke that got him crucified. Do you know the one statement? This is a good Bible quiz. What's the one thing Jesus said that, that resulted in his crucifixion? You got it, baby. Destroy the temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. Jesus spoke sod. They thought Peshat, and it brought him to the cross. And the religious world cannot handle what I'm teaching you. They really can't. I mean, they get so upset. You know, fanciful to teach the Song of Songs is us and Jesus. And I said, well, bro, you're twisting Scripture to make it like erotica. It's not in there. And they say, well, what about body parts? Well, don't worry. I'll talk to you about body parts in a little bit. And it's not what you think. They're all pictures of something, aren't they? So, um, destroy this temple in three days. They misinterpreted it. It brought him to the cross, and it, at his trial, his illegal trial, that was the one thing that was brought up, verified that he spoke, determined to be blasphemy, and ended up in his crucifixion. Now, we know that was the plan of God, but humanly speaking, that's what uh, led to his death. Isn't that amazing? I hope... The one thing you walk away from this weekend with me 
is that there's a lot more in the Bible than you thought. You're not a know-it-all, and neither am I. And there's so much God wants to teach us if we'll have a childlike heart and dive into the mysteries and feast on mystery. The church has been deprived of mystery. We've done everything we can to demystify our spirituality. And uh, we've done to the Word of God what we've done to the gifts of the Spirit, which is done away with them. And so with the deeper revelation of Scripture, we have said it's not valid. It's not true. So this mindset of man, the Golgotha, the skull, the place of the skull, that's where the cross must, be, must penetrate the place of the skull. That's where revelation and salvation pours out. So... Uh, the mercy seat. You're the temple, right? Are we not a walking temple? And to verify, Ezekiel's temple is now officially being rebuilt, and we will not, we're not looking for an earthly temple. Most recent scholarship, I'm talking about in the last five years, is even questioning the temple mount if that indeed is where the temple was. So, I mean, there, there's like, it's like, come on. Uh, you know, we love Israel. I'm going to Israel Sunday after church. We leave for Israel. I'm going twice with my wife in the month of October. I'm leading a team and speaking to 500 Chinese leaders. They asked me to teach them about the last days. They heard uh, a rumor that glory is coming, uh, that, will trans- that was bigger than the Antichrist. There's a bigger glory that Jesus Christ always trumps Antichrist. And the glory is what's coming. The last book of the Bible is the unveiling of Jesus Christ. And how it became a, uh, you know, a preview of coming events and simply uh, a fear-ridden book to just drive people crazy is so sad because it's the unveiling of Jesus in us. We're his people. Eight times in the Bible, people are clouds, and he's coming in the clouds. There's a people that will bring him to the earth. So that's what I'll be doing there in Israel. So I love Israel. I love Israel. But uh, I, don't, I, I don't replace the church with Israel, neither do I replace Israel with Jesus. You don't go through Israel to find Jesus. You don't become a Jew or Jewish to discover Jesus, right? Any more than you go through the church or a priest or a person. You just come to Jesus. I am the way, all right? I am the door and the way, the truth, and life. So come. Come to me. We go directly to him. We don't go through Judaism. We don't go through Catholicism. We don't go through Christianity. We come directly to Jesus Christ. That's called the priesthood of the believers. So let me finish. We'll take a short break. Uh, the, uh, the evidence that the temple of Ezekiel of chapter 47, 48 is being rebuilt was the first miracle in the book of Acts. Anybody know the very first miracle in the book of Acts? What was it? Beyond Pentecost, after Pentecost. What was the first miracle? A man was healed. And where was he at? He was at the gate, beautiful. And do you remember Ezekiel's river that comes out of the gate? Comes out of the threshold of the temple, a river, and it's measured in different measurements. What was the first measurement of the depth of the river? It was ankle deep. Here's a man at the gate beautiful, and what's his problem? 
ankles. The river poured through them. The temple opened up with James and John. He's going, he's trying to get into the earthly temple when the spiritual temple had a river that could bring healing to him right there. And the church is still doing the same thing. We're so locked in like Potini to the five husbands that we've not understood the revelatory truths of the Bible. But that's changing. The spirit winds of God are blowing. Spirit of revelation, uh, wisdom and revelation is falling. And uh, the books are being opened, 66 of them. And revelation truth is being imparted to us. Isn't that amazing? You don't have to go up a dark mountain trail. And it's all about you and whether you can make it. And, you know, Jesus will kind of be your crutch on the way up. No, 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 no. There's certain things he will not tell you because he tests us. And we're going now into chapter 4, but you have to understand, as of yet, he has not even called her bride yet. She's not the bride yet. She hasn't even gone up the mountain yet. She just realizes she got the revelation, oh, oh, I don't need to be afraid. And that's the greatest revelation you can get. You don't need to be afraid. Do not fear. Don't let fear conquer you. Because my love already has. We're conquered by love, not by fear. So in chapter 4, we get body parts. And he describes her head to toe here in chapter 4. Chapter 6, he describes her toe to head. But he starts describing her, and he begins with her eyes, and he says, listen, my dearest darling, you are so beautiful, you are beauty itself to me. Your eyes glisten with love like gentle doves behind your veil. Now, the eyes are a picture of something. What do you think they might symbolize? Perception of reality. It's, she's perceiving spiritual truth. Eyes like doves, she's seeing in the realm of the spirits. By the spirit revelation, she's now starting her journey. She's now understanding that it's not by might or power, but by the spirit of the Lord. And this eyes like doves mentality is so powerful May the Lord give you eyes like doves as you look at your life, as you look at your family, as you look into the future, as you look in the mess that may be around you, that you see with revelation eyes. Now, the prayer that I prayed for 44 years of my life is Ephesians 1, the eyes of my understanding, the spirit eyes being brightened or lightened, and the eyes of our imagination it can actually be translated, the eyes of your imagination be enlightened. And I have a teaching about imagination. We won't go into that now. It's not for this meeting. But it's got a pretty bad rap. When uh, in Genesis 1, where it says, God said, let there be light, the word for said can be. It's not an uh, etymological stretch to translate it, and God imagined, and light came forth. 
Before he said it, he had to think it. He had to imagine it. So the inspired imagination, Paul says, may the eyes of your imagination be enlightened with, illuminated with light of God. It isn't that imagination is bad. It's just, it's a tool that we can give to enemy or we give to God. Now, the world was destroyed by a flood because every imagination of their heart was evil. What if every imagination of your heart is glory? What if the imagination of our heart is tilted like a, a, you know, like a solar dish tilted to the Son of God, the glory of God? Then we're going to look at Him all the time until our faces are glistening in radiance. So imagination is going to be redeemed in this coming move of God where we begin to raise up prophetic people that understand that some of the things you think are imagination is actually spirit realm trying to get into you. And I want to say to the women here and to the men, what you think is woman's intuition many times is the spirit realm trying to break into the natural. And we just, we, we shake our head and say, oh, well, that can't be, or oh, I don't know, or it's just a dream, or I, I think, or no. Begin to go with those things, and you'll enter into realms of glory you've never tasted. For years, I saw a sea of glass when I prayed, and I, I decided, okay, I'm going there. I, I'm, I'm done. I'm going there. And all of a sudden, I'm there on a sea of glass, and I'm interceding as an intercessor. I'm kneeling on the sea of glass, and every prayer I pray, someone right next to me is like praying the same prayer. And I I focus my eyes, and it's Jesus. And he turned to me, and he said, would you be my prayer partner on the sea of glass? So I wrote a book called Prayer Partners with Jesus from that vision, where the Lord began to give me revelation about prayer and intercession. And it starts out simple. It's very generic as I talk about what prayer is. But by the latter chapters about enthroned intercession, what it means to be the planetary priest. Uh, Oh, my, 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 my. So, I have found in my journey as a male and as a guy that had, uh, uh, you know, I guess I'm visual. I guess I would be a visual type of person. I, I have imagination. And as I sanctified it and brought it before God, whew, it's, it's just awesome. Just awesome. Anyway, that's, that's not, uh, not for today. But in chapter 4, her eyes, like doves, picture illumination coming into her eyes, into her heart. And notice that they're doves behind a veil. Now, this is a veil of humility. I get a little nervous when everybody wants to give their bragamonies of what they've seen in the spirit realm. Like, like uh, you know, God said, God told me, and and we, we, before long, we get such an elevated, why don't we put a sock in it for a while? Why don't we put a veil over it? You know, Paul was taken to heaven and waited 14 years before he told anybody. Bro, 14 minutes, if you were taken to heaven, dude, you'd have a website, takentoheaven.com. You'd start signing up for my mailing list. We'd market it, bro. Certain revelation is meant to ferment. It's meant to marinate. It's, it's, it's put it behind your veil. So he sees within the last day's bride, the church, the Shulamite lover, he sees that she's perceiving deep, profound things, but she's not bragging or blabbing or having to tell everybody about it. She's hiding it. And certain things, we, it's better that you keep silent. Wisdom is, is not talking about it. Okay? So, 
The next virtue he points out is your eyes, uh, your hair. Yeah, your hair. Your hair is like a flock of goats running down Mount Gilead. Isn't that a compliment? Wouldn't you like for me to tell you your hair is like a bunch of stinky goats? Ladies, does that turn you on? Is that like, whoo, stop, I'm, oh, I'm melting. I don't think so. Dirty goat hair chick. There's nothing sensual about being told these things. So what is hair? Let's, rather than hit hair, let's talk about Gilead. I believe Gilead is the key here. It's, it's goats streaming, running down Mount Gilead. Now, Gilead is where the sacrificial animals were kept for temple worship. They were ready to be offered. They were animals that were to be slaughtered. They were sacrifices that were to be offered at temple worship on the altar. So her hair then becomes a picture of devotion to Christ. Mary was devoted to Jesus, wept on his feet, and then dried his feet with what? Her hair. It's a picture of her devotion. Samson had long hair and had supernatural strength, and it wasn't his hair as much as it was his vow, his Nazarite vow, the devotion of his heart to love God uh, purely and to keep his vows. That's what, where his strength was. So the hair again becomes an emblem, a picture of devotion to God, okay? So you are like an animal. You are so devoted to me, you are ready to be a living sacrifice in wherever I send you. You are a pure offering of love to me. Isn't that beautiful from dirty goat hair? That took me a long time to figure that one out, bro. Uh, that took months for me seeking the Lord and asking of pursuing revelation about this. So I'm condensing it all here for you in just a seconds. The next is um, teeth. Oh, cool. She got fluffy teeth. Her teeth are like fluffy goats coming up out of the washing of the water of the Word. The teeth is what we chew the Word of God. We, we process and we chew the deeper revelatory truths. Uh, we don't just drink milk any longer, but we're able to di- digest meat, the meat of the Word. Amen? And so teeth become the ability to process revelatory truth and implement it into our lives. She has teeth that are coming up from the washing of the water of the Word of God, Ephesians 5. So her ability to perceive truth in the Word, she's, it's based on the Word of God, and not one is missing. There, uh, it literally means there's, each has a twin. Each one has born a twin. Each sheep has a twin. The truth of that is every truth has a counterpart truth to it. And many of you are so locked into one note on the piano, there's 88 keys, bro, and you've got one note. You're not playing a symphony when you just talk grace, 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 grace. Dude, there's 87 other keys. Play a melody. People will come and sing and dance. And of course there's grace, but dude, we can emphasize everything. But with every truth, there's another truth to it. Right? Okay. Spiritual maturity. Is it all God? Of course. Do you have anything to do with it? Yes. You see the counterpart? How can it be all God, but you have something to do with it? See, every one has a twin. Makes sense to me. Then, uh, is neck, is the neck the next? Oh, lips. Your lips are lovely as Rahab's scarlet ribbon. 
uh, crimson, uh, scarlet. She has lipstick. Uh, Shulamite has scarlet lips. What does that mean? Blood. Redemption. What she speaks, what comes out of her lips is life-giving, drenched with love. It's affirming. It's redemptive. She takes clumsy situations and can redeem it. She can take the failures of others and redeem it with her words. She's speaking to other people the way he speaks to her. He speaks affirmation, love, and redemption, and mercy, and, and revelation to her. Now she has scarlet on her lips. Now she is speaking crimson words of love and redemption to others. You see it? Now we've got, uh, uh, your cheeks are like pomegranates. I like this, the pomegranate. The pomegranate is a blushing fruit. You uh, open it up, and of course, it's, it's, it's like the blushing of our cheeks. And the cheek or countenance is an emblem, a metaphor of our emotions. If you looked at me right now, and you can tell from when you really know somebody, if you really know and love somebody, you can look at them. They don't have to say a word. You can look at them, and you say, wow, what's wrong? Or, wow, you just won the lotto. You know, you, why? Because our emotions come out of our cheeks, out of our countenance. So he looks at the Shulamite and says, your, your emotional life is alive. I can move you. If I play the, 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 if I play, uh, the flute for you, you will dance. Last night, I hope you danced as we played that song. We're going to play it again in just a little bit. Uh, the, uh, you have ravished my heart. But uh, because God wants your emotions to come alive. I am a recovering Baptist. I've been taught in Bible college, you do not go by emotion, stuff it down. You're a pastor, a preacher. Don't let anybody know your struggle, your emotions. Just keep it. and Just be that stoic, weird leader guy. Uh, that's not me. And uh, I found that God touches my emotions. And he made us emotional beings. Who invented emotions? The devil? No. So God can sanctify our heart and sanctify our emotions and our soul. And we become emotional beings that when he touches us, oh, we move. We move to the right when he moves us to the right. When he goes to the left, well, we're going to go to the left. Why? We're moved by the Spirit of the Lord. In him we move. We live and move and have our being. Our soul can be nurtured by love. So her cheeks opening up. Like pomegranates is a picture of when I speak to you, your heart bursts open to me. And I love that about you. Isn't it interesting that the temple of Solomon at the very top of the temple was engraved, opened pomegranates. Because when he looks at his temple, he wants to see our heart open to him. Isn't that powerful? I believe, I keep wanting to talk about the neck. So let's get to the neck here. Okay. This girl's a giraffe. I mean, she's got this neck. Woo! Her neck is like this massive tower. And on it are a thousand shields. What? Whoo, baby. What's the neck a picture of? You ever heard of stiff necked? What's that mean? Stubborn. What about if you bow the neck or the head? You're submitting, you're yielding, you're you're honoring. So the neck then becomes a picture of our will, the will of man. And in this case, she has a neck that is resolute. She's 
tall and stately. She, she's upright. Her will is determined to follow God. She's bent on going for him and with him in battle and with warfare. Now, the only way you get a, sh- a soldier to let go of their shield is you conquer them. All right? So a thousand shields hangs upon her neck. What victory she has walked in through supernatural forces of darkness. She has been resolute. She's been faithful. And on it are a thousand shields of warriors that have yielded to her beauty. The power of her influence is touching people around her. Isn't this beautiful pictures? Her breasts. Oh, my. What is that? It's where we nurse the young. Her breasts are twin fawns of a gazelle. She is nursing because she's feeding with the right things. She's giving the right milk to a generation. She's nursing this rising generation, not with the dysfunction of the boomers, not with the weirdness of a generation that's left their first love, but with fire and passion and glory. She's feeding among lilies. She's browsing among the pure of heart. She's feasting on the pure virtues of Jesus Christ, and she gives the milk of purity and love. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 8, it says the breastplate of faith and love. We wear the breastplate of faith and love. Her breasts are are faith and love. She's giving this generation strong faith and holy love to build their lives upon. You see how that, that works? And then she's speechless. Now, the last time she said anything was, I will not let him go until I take him to my mother's house, remember? She hadn't said anything. She saw the revelation of the mercy seat, that she's going to be carried by mercy to the higher realms. And then he begins these beautiful statements. I think there's eight of them. These beautiful statements of how he sees her. Isn't it beautiful? how he sees you. He doesn't see the immaturity. He sees the fullness of Christ coming forth in you. And he he puts a crown on our head and watches us grow up to fit it. It doesn't fit when he puts it on us. We're not, we don't feel that royal. But over time, as he speaks his words of love, she matures and so do you. And that crown, suddenly the day comes when the curtain rises and you are the bride. You are the royal bride of Psalm 45 coming out of the holy chamber within. And you're coming forth, the royal bride decked with gold and embroidered with beauty. And here you come, the regal partner of the Son of God. And awesome. I just love the way he deals with the Shulamite. I would wish every pastor in every church would model their ministry after the Song of Songs. That the way to grow churches and grow Christians is not guilt-driven theology of pounding the pulpit and making every Sunday exhortation. There is a place of exhortation. There is a place to exhort the body of Christ. But if we instead would use the Word of God, not as a weapon, but we use it as a tractor beam to pull people into a deeper glory, into a greater realm of, of, of oneness, two shall become one. Uh, God forbid, let no man, uh, you know, divide asunder what God is putting together. And if you don't like it, then speak now or forever hold your peace, baby. Because God is going to have a bride that is perfect for him, for his son. A beautiful partner for the son of God is emerging in the nations. And it's you and it's me in love with Jesus, filled with love. Uh, It's love. 
folks, that bring spiritual maturity? What if the meter of maturity was the needle was all love? What if it was, you know, whoever loves the most wins? <laughs> whoever loves the most, peg that needle, baby. I'm, I'm going to go into the flames of God. And if you never see me again, the last thing you'll see is me going up in flames like a chariot of fire. <sighs> That's what I want. Come visit me too. Oh, okay, you're going to come. We'll, we'll share the chariot. Yeah, okay, same chariot, right? Amen. Now verse 6, she speaks up. And this is very reminiscent of chapter 2. You remember in chapter 2, she said, I can't go with you until the day breaks and the shadows flee. Uh, I'm not ready. Well, she uses the same words, but this time she's ready. She says, I don't care about uh, the dusk. I don't care if the day has not fully come. She says, until the darkness disappears and the dawn has fully come, in spite of shadows and fears, I will go to the mountaintop with you. I will climb with you the mountain of suffering love. He forgot to tell her something. The mountain he's taking her to? Are you sitting down? It's Calvary. It's Calvary. That's where we're one with him. That's where we become his bride. Co-crucified. Co-buried. Co-raised, co-seated, co-glorified. Drink your cocoa. So she becomes the bride at this point. When you say yes to suffering love, you become the bride. Let me say it clearly. What qualifies you as the bride, as a bridal partner of the Son of God, is when you say, I will go wherever you take me. And if you take me, where you went, I still will be yours. See, when you marry up, you get the joy and the thrill of marrying up, but you also uh, are committed to be one with him. So if he is a man of sufferings, then, and acquainted with grief, then what does that have to say to the bride? Well, in chapter 5, he's going to come to her. She said, I will go. In chapter, the next chapter, he knocks on the door to get her to go. And she's not ready. She gets up, but she finally says, okay, okay, I'll come to the door. But he's already gone. And who was it at the door? The man of Gethsemane. His hair was drenched with dew, damp with the dew of the night, because he'd been all night praying. Can you not watch with me one hour? He wanted a partner. He wanted someone to share suffering love. Now, let me take a quick moment to say to you that love always suffers. There is a component to love, and this is why people don't go into the path of love, because it, there is a suffering attached you're, I don't know if you're getting this, but let me try it again. When you truly love, there will be suffering attached to it. Let, let's say you love somebody for 60 years, you're married to them, and then you bury them in the ground. 
Is there not suffering to love? See, there's suffering. Why? Because our soul is attached. There is a, a holy love that as it's released in and through us, it opens us up to suffering. And you may not have thought about it this way, but you have, and you know that. And that's why many people shut down and say, I'll never love again. I'll never open myself up again. I'll never be vulnerable again. Because they've been hurt, betrayed, wounded, whatever. Someone who promised the rest of their life with you walked away, and, and, and you're left like what? How could I let that happen again? So suffering and love go hand in hand. And it's interesting that 1 Corinthians 13 says love suffers long. Now, I didn't translate it that way because it, it, it's not exactly what it means. But love does suffer long, doesn't it? It endures all things. There's an enduring thing about love. I have a really good definition for suffering love. Mother of a teenager. <laughs> Parent of a teenager. Selah. <laughs> I think you got it. <clears throat> she ends, verse 6, yes, I will be your bride. Verse 7, he speaks. <clears throat> and he says, every part of you is so beautiful, my darling. Perfect your beauty without flaw within. You guys okay? You hearing this? Flawless. Without flaw is my love. Without flaw. Why is it we want to point out flaws? When the Lord looks at you, and it's not just as if I'd never sinned, it's the unstained innocence of righteousness given through Jesus Christ. Everything Jesus is has been transferred to you, literally. You are pasted with purity. A glory is upon you that has made you flawless. When you say yes to him, you are perfection in his eyes. This is mystery. This is love. Flawless, your beauty. Perfect within. As he looks at you, there's nothing that offends him. Nothing that puts a distance between you and him. One of my times on the sea of glass, he said, I want you, son, to tell my people what I love about them. I said, I will. What is it? I know what he loves about you. He told me. Everything. Tell them. I love everything about them. That will ruin your religious spirit. Absolutely knock it out. On the ropes. Bam. Down to the count. Everything about you is flawless in my eyes. Perfect your beauty. When you say yes to Calvary, you say yes to the nails that I took. Yes. Perfect. Now you are ready, bride of the mountains, to come with me as we climb the highest peaks together. Come with me through the archway of trust. This is translated by the, from the Septuagint. I have footnotes in here to explain these things. We will look down from the crest of the glistening mounts and from the summit of our majestic sanctuary. The the Hebrew uh, in many Bibles says, let's, uh, let's go up 
to the mountain, but it's actually we're looking down from the mountain, okay? From the crest of the glistening mounts, together we will wage war in the lion's den and the leopard's lair. You see, he didn't tell her at the front end, I want a bride to fight with me. Ha! I want a warring bride. Come on, you're going to be a chick that fights for God. Ha! You're going to put combat boots on, and you're going to fight the lion and the leopard. They're both emblems of dark forces. These are not demons. These are principalities. These are in the heavenly realms. These are in the high places. This is Ephesians 6, putting on the weapons and the armor that God wears. We wear God's clothing as we go out to battle. We look like Him when we fight the enemy. And we fight the leopards and the lions, and we come out victorious. Then verse 9, you need to be sitting down for this. You reach into my heart with one flash of your eyes. I'm undone by your love. My beloved, my equal, my bride, you leave me breathless. I'm overcome by merely a glance from your worshiping eyes. For you have stolen my heart. I'm held hostage by your love. Oh, bro. Dude. You reach into my heart with one flash of your eyes or one glance of your eyes. I'm undone by your love. Overcome by a glance. That's the word Rahab in Hebrew. You have Rahabed my heart. The Hebrew word overcome is Rahab. You have Rahabed me. Isn't that powerful? You have Rahabed my heart. Rahab means overcomer. She was an overcomer. That girl had to overcome some things. What the women thought of her. What the men thought of her. Don't even think about that. The king of Jericho. What he thought of her when, he, when she let the spies in. She had to overcome. So have you. You have overcome. You've conquered. But there's one more thing you need to conquer. You've conquered fear. You've conquered your past. Now conquer him. You can conquer him with a glance. You conquer him with a glance. Do you understand what I'm saying? That you have the ability to conquer someone who has never been conquered. All the demons of hell could not conquer him. You can. Nobody conquers the inconquerable Christ. Uh-uh. But you have. You've conquered me with a glance. Just a glance. Merely a glance from your worshiping eyes, and I am undone. Held hostage by your love. Just a glance. Now, if you conquer somebody who is, if you conquer a conqueror, why that would make you more than a conqueror. Where do you think Paul got it? You are more than a conqueror because you conquer him with a glance. What would happen 
if you fixed your eyes upon Him, your beloved, you refuse to turn aside to the offenses of, of men, to the distractions of the world, to the pain of this life. You refuse Teflon over your soul. You refuse to let anything stick to you except Jesus. And this is only chapter 4. Wait till you hear. I can't wait to, to, to tell you this afternoon we're going to have the seal of fire. We're going to end. I'll pray over every single person that comes back. And don't come and ask me, say, I'm going to leave and I can't come back and I, I want you to pray. No, I'm going to go eat lunch. Come back and get the seal of fire. But before we go, I'm going to ask our really anointed sound guys if you'll turn it up even louder than last night. I want it almost overpowering. And this is the end of our morning session. Now you heard what we've taught about being overpowered, about Jesus being conquered with your eyes. May you be stirred. You have ravished his heart.